let's read it together. Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable to you. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, rejoice this morning. We thank you for the exciting things that we see happening in the lives of our young adults. And Lord, we thank you for these uh, graduates this morning. We thank you for just how far you have brought them already. And Lord, we pray for them that they would stand firm in the faith as they go forward and uh, whatever setting they might be in. But Lord, we pray that they would continue to grow in you and and to be uh, faithful disciples of Christ. And Lord, we thank you also for our college students that are already uh, at at college and pray that they're as they're here for the summer, they'll, they'll have some time of reprieve, but also be a good uh, growing time as well. And Lord, we rejoice in having them back with us today. And Lord, for others that are pursuing careers or jobs, Lord, we pray also for them that uh, all of these young adults will uh, grow in you and stand firm in you. And and uh, Lord, we we think of them as uh, the future uh, leaders in the church. And Lord. We pray that you would prepare them for that role uh, in the days ahead. Lord, uh, we thank you so much for your grace in our lives. We know we don't deserve your salvation. So, Lord, we, we come with grateful hearts. We come with hearts filled with gratitude this morning, and uh, we praise your name. And so, Lord, we uh, know you are worthy. And, and, Lord, we pray this morning as we think about the characteristics of the new covenant, that these would be characteristics that would be found in our uh, lives, that these would characterize this body of believers, Parker Bible Church, that uh, uh, we would be known as a new covenant community of believers. And so, Lord, we pray this morning as we worship that you would accept our praise and, uh, Lord, that you would be pleased with it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 13 deals primarily with the subject of Christian ethics. It serves as a conclusion to this sermon by pointing to some key applications of the doctrinal truths that have been presented. The core section of this chapter is our text this morning. Verses 10 through 17 
speak of the characteristics of the new covenant. And throughout this book, we have seen the contrast between the old covenant and the new. But here we have the application that should result because of those distinctions. And I see three clear divisions in this core section. So we're going to look at the characteristics of separation, sacrifice, and submission. We have seen a lot in this book about the new covenant and how it is superior to the old. But today we're going to see how this applies to those who embrace the new covenant. We begin with the separation of the new covenant. Look with me again at verses 10 through 14. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Hence, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Now, this section is the most one of the most difficult to interpret in the entire book. There is no doubt that it is based on the Day of Atonement ritual in Leviticus 16.27, but there have been a lot of interpretations here. For example, there are those who have taken this altar that is mentioned in verse 10 as a literal altar, and that those who have the right to partake of it are those who have the right to eat of the Lord's Supper. But if you take that view, then who are those who serve the tabernacle that do not have the right to partake of it? Verse 11 clearly speaks of the bodies of animals being burned outside the camp and clearly refers to the high priest there. So this cannot be a reference to Christian worship. Others have taken this to refer to a heavenly altar, such as the one spoken of in Revelation chapter 6. So in this understanding, the ones who have the right to partake of it are those who are bound toward heaven. But again, this doesn't really fit with the description that we have here, because there are no sacrifices in heaven, especially sacrifices of animals that are burned outside the camp. MacArthur says others believe the altar is a figure of Christ whose body we are to eat and whose blood we are to drink, a la John chapter 6. But still the question remains about who are those who are not allowed to eat and about the sacrificial animals. I think it is helpful to take verses 10 through 14 in three parts. And the first thing we need to understand is what I'm calling the contrast. We see the contrast in verse 10. Look at it with me. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. And perhaps the key to interpreting this 
passage properly is the pronoun we. Who does that refer to? I believe the author of this book is using this pronoun to refer to his fellow Jews. In essence, he's saying, we Jews have an altar. And the priests serve in the temple or tabernacle. And they ordinarily have the right to eat a portion of the sacrifices. But on the Day of Atonement, they do not have that right. On the Day of Atonement, the priests are not allowed to eat of those animals that are sacrificed on the altar. Instead, they have to take them outside the camp and burn them. And this is exactly what we see in Leviticus 16.27. It says, But the bull of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be taken outside the camp, and they shall burn their hides, their flesh, and their refuse in the fire. The sin offering on the day of atonement could not be eaten. It had to be completely consumed with fire. The sacrificial animal was completely obliterated. You say, well, where's the contrast here? Well, it is implied here, but not stated implicitly. And we're going to see what is comparable between the Old and New Covenants next. But here the contrast is implied in that the perfect sacrifice of Christ became an atonement that new covenant believers can partake of. And unlike the day of atonement animal sacrifices, Christ was not obliterated, but is eternal. And unlike the day of atonement animal sacrifices that could not be eaten, every new covenant believer has the right to partake of the sin offering of Christ. So in this contrast, in essence, we see where it distinguishes those who are still under the old covenant and those who are now under the new covenant. And once again, the author of this book is distinguishing between two groups of people, between two ways of worship and two approaches to God. So there is a sense in which we could see the word altar in verse 10 as a point of contrast. The altar of the old covenant was unable to fully atone for sin, but the altar of the new covenant can and does. So as O'Brien puts it, here the word altar is a cultic term used in a shorthand and figurative way For the many dimensions of Christ's death, his sacrifice is a source of both the saving and sustaining grace by which our hearts are strengthened. Guthrie says, although it is not clear exactly what he has in mind regarding the Christian's altar, this much is clear. The participants of the new covenant draw special sustenance and life from a source unavailable to those of the tabernacle. And that source is Jesus Christ. 
That leads us, secondly, to the comparison. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Here, the comparison is between the animal sacrifices which were burned outside the camp and Jesus' sacrifice that took place outside the city gate. Crucifixions could not take place inside the city of Jerusalem because that city was considered holy. And ironically, what the Jews were doing in crucifying Jesus was something very unholy, and it was the ultimate hypocrisy. But the point the author is making here is that Jesus' atoning work is comparable to the Day of Atonement sacrifice in that both were used to deal with sin. One temporarily, but the other permanently. And of course, unlike the animal sacrifices, Jesus' sacrifice through his own blood was absolutely perfect and sufficient to atone for all sin for all time. But the emphasis here is on where the sacrifice was made. It was made outside the camp. It was outside the gate of the city. Ron Phillips writes, Our Lord Jesus went outside the gates of glory to come to this earth. He went outside the rights of his royalty and became a slave for us. He went outside the city of Jerusalem and wept and prayed in blood-shedding agony for our souls. And he was taken outside the city by the cursing crowd to be crucified. And he did this in order that he might sanctify his people. He did this to provide eternal salvation for all who would put their faith and trust in his atoning work. The word for sanctify here means to purge from sin and to set apart for service to God. This was accomplished through the shed blood of Christ on the cross. But there's a third element that we see in this section, and that is the conclusion. Look with me at verses 13 and 14. Hence, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Here he is using the idea of going outside the city in a different way. Here he's talking about going outside the system, so to speak. The original Jews that this book was written to understood this to mean going outside Jerusalem. The reproach that he's referring to here is the reproach that would come from other Jews who had not yet embraced the new covenant. And most of the persecution that the early uh, Jewish Christians faced was from fellow Jews. 
But the basic message here is that God is no longer in the camp of Judaism. MacArthur writes, Whatever significance and importance the old covenant and traditional ceremonies, regulations, and standards of Judaism once had, they are now invalid. God now does his complete his work completely outside the camp of Jerusalem. When Jesus died on the cross, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. And from that moment on, the entire ceremonial law was abrogated. The temple, the altar, the sacrifices, and all the rituals of Judaism ceased to be a part of God's program. In fact, these are now part of the world system, a part of man's religion of works, and something that Satan uses to keep people deceived and under condemnation. MacArthur says, God cast them aside, and they became as pagan as any sacrifice in the temples of Baal or Diana. He said a Christian Jew of that day had no more right to hold on to Judaism than a Gentile Christian had a right to hold on to the worship of Jupiter. So what is the application for those of us who are Christians today? It is a call to biblical separation. As Christians... We are to be willing to go outside the system, so to speak. We are to separate ourselves from the evil world system, which includes sin, of course, but also would include any kinds of works systems of righteousness. Now, this principle of separation does not mean that we're never to have contact with unbelievers. Nor does it mean that we are to cloister ourselves away from the world and become monastics. That's not what this is saying. No, what it means is that we're to walk in practical holiness and we're to be different from the world. Jesus said in John 17, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. We're not going to be taken out of the world, but we need to be holy as we walk in the world. We are on mission for God in the physical world where we live. But we're not to be like the world system that is controlled by Satan and is against God. 1 John two fifteen through 17 says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. So we're to walk separate from the world. We're not to be like the world. And the motivation 
for bearing the reproach of Christ and separating ourselves from the world is that we have a permanent city in heaven waiting for us. We do this in light of the promise of an eternal home. So we see the separation of the new covenant. But secondly, we see the sacrifices of the new covenant. The concept of making sacrifices was very important to the Jews. Under the old covenant, sacrifices were the provision by which God cleansed their sin. But since Christ has cleansed our sins once and for all by the shedding of his own blood, what kinds of sacrifices are left for those of us under the new covenant? The truth of the matter is there are still some sacrifices that God demands from those who are under the new covenant. These are not sacrifices to atone for sin in any way, but they are sacrifices that demonstrate devotion to God for his saving grace. There are two types of sacrifice under the new covenant. First of all, there's the sacrifice of gratitude. Gratitude. Look with me at verse 15. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, That is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. God no longer desires sacrifices of animals. Instead, he desires verbal sacrifices of thanksgiving. And notice, for Christians, this is something we're to continually do. We are to constantly be expressing our gratitude to God. This is not just a Sunday thing. It is to be every single day and throughout each day. And our offering of this sacrifice is not to be a fair weather kind of thing. We're to offer this sacrifice in good times and in bad. Paul put it in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And like the psalmist of old, we're to continually praise the Lord. This fruit of our lips may be at times in the form of songs of praise. Or maybe in simply expressing our thanksgiving to God verbally. But this ought to be the natural response for anyone who is saved by God's grace. Jimmy Draper once wrote, Praise is the most beautiful expression of a redeemed soul. When we think about all Jesus Christ has done, our hearts ought to swell up in praise. We ought to bless God, praise the Lord, thank the Lord for all he has done. Now, why does the author of Hebrews here use the phrase, fruit of our lips? Well, I can't be dogmatic about this, but could it be that the concept of fruit implies that praise is the natural outcome of a genuine believer? In the same way that a tree produces fruit naturally, so a born-again believer should produce this fruit naturally. A tree doesn't have to try to produce fruit. 
The fruit just comes. So it should be with every genuine believer in Christ. Listen, if you are having difficulty praising God, then you should ask yourself if you are truly born again. Praise to God is a natural fruit for every true believer. And note that this is to be the fruit of our lips, which means this is something that is actually expressed. You know, it's one thing to be grateful in your heart, but the Bible says you are to express it with your lips. Listen, when we sing songs of praise in our corporate worship, you ought to sing whether or not you think you can sing well. You ought to sing simply as an expression of praise to God. And you ought to express your gratitude to God verbally. Verbally. That's what this is saying. This is our sacrifice under the new covenant. And one more thing before we move on. We should ask ourselves, are we characterized by gratitude or grumbling? Are we known in this congregation for our sacrifice of praise to God or our words of complaints? Are we known for always finding fault and for criticizing others? Or are we known for being people who are always praising God and fully supporting His work? But there's a second type of sacrifice that we see under the new covenant and that is the sacrifice of giving giving look with me at verse 16 and do not neglect doing good or sharing for with such sacrifices god is pleased the sacrifices of the new covenant include both word and deed one sacrifice is toward god the other is toward men but both are needed this is the sacrifice of service, the sacrifice of giving, the sacrifice of doing good for others. And earlier in verse 2, we we're told not to neglect the practice of hospitality, but now we're told not to neglect kind and generous acts toward others. The phrase doing good is a general statement that would include all Christian ministry to other people. And notice the word sharing there. That is the familiar word koinonia. It includes Christian fellowship, but in this case, it is emphasizing giving of your material possessions to help others. And this kind of Christian sharing was clearly demonstrated in the first century church as they sold their goods to minister to the poor and needy that were coming to Christ. We read in James 1:27, this is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our of God, our God and Father, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Now we saw the last part of this admonition earlier. Now we see the first part. We are to offer to God a sacrifice by ministering to others in Jesus' name. That would include widows and orphans, but also anyone else who has a need. This is part of our new covenant sacrifice. 
So we see the separation of the new covenant. We see the sacrifices of the new covenant. But there's one more thing that we need to see, and that is the submission of the new covenant. Look with me at verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, but they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable to you. Here the author comes back to the theme of leaders in the church. And remember, this is the second of two bookends that mark out the central portion of this chapter. Verse 7 was the first bookend with the mention of the word leader. This is the second. The phrase, those who led you, in verse 7, points to leaders of the past, while here in verse 17, he's talking about those who were the current leaders of the church at the time this was written. And the author of this book clearly wants the congregation to submit to their authority. Notice the two verbs there. The first one, translated obey in the New American Standard, literally means to have confidence in. Have confidence in your leaders. The second one, which is translated submit, means to give way to or to yield to their authority. Both of these terms are important. And this expresses God's will for how the people in the congregation are to respond to their leaders. The truth of the matter is that God has appointed certain men to certain roles in which he has granted authority to them. In this, God mediates his own authority by delegating it to men for specific purposes. For example, even pagan rulers are used by God for the purpose of human government. We read in Romans 13:1, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. But for the Christian in the church, the most important rule is through spirit-filled men that God has appointed to lead the church. Biblically, these are the elders, and submission to them is, in essence, submission to God. These men are under-shepherds. Christ is the great shepherd of the sheep, but God has appointed certain men to rule in the place of Christ. And someday, of course, Christ himself is going to rule and reign on this earth as king of kings. But for now, he has delegated his authority to the leaders of his church. Biblically, these men are the elders referred to in the Greek as presbyteros, episkopos, or poimen. And we can really call them either elders, bishops, overseers, shepherds, or pastors. And of course, in the book of Acts, we see where Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in every city. And then in Titus 1.5, Paul directed Titus to do the same. Every New Testament church had elders 
to provide leadership and oversight. In many churches today, the congregation rules the leaders instead of the other way around. That is not God's design. Of course, church leaders are not to be tyrants because they do not rule for themselves but for God. There's a big difference between having authority and being an authoritarian. The Bible, in fact, tells us how these men are to lead. 1 Peter 5, 2 and 3 says that elders are to shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. This is how the leaders are to lead. Elders are under shepherds who serve under the authority of the chief shepherd, as verse 4 puts it. An elder's authority is always delegated authority. And it is to the chief shepherd that elders are going to give an account for their leadership. So the leaders have a responsibility then to lead in a godly way. But notice that the congregation has a responsibility to submit to their leadership. And all this is to be done with a heart of humility and love. In fact, we read in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13, but we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. In fact, our Lord Jesus himself said in John thirteen twenty, he who receives whomever I send receives me and he who receives me receives him who sent me. MacArthur says when a man is placed in the role of a uh, in the rule of a local church, our submission and obedience to him is equivalent in submission and obedience to Christ. And notice why the author of Hebrews commands this kind of submission. It is because they keep watch over your souls, and they do this as those who will give an account. Leadership in the church carries with it a sobering responsibility. Pastors will one day give an account for how they watched over the souls of those in their care. Leaders in the church are accountable to God. They are responsible for taking care of the sheep and being faithful to feed them with the Word of God. The word for keep watch there is a Greek word that essentially means to remain wakeful and alert. It can mean to be sleepless. The present tense means this is a constant responsibility. Of course, we see the heart of a true shepherd at several points in the New Testament. Paul had a pastor's heart when he said in 2 Corinthians 12, 15, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. Apostle John expressed in 3 John 4 uh, when he said, I have no greater joy than this to hear that my children are walking in the truth. 
pastor's sweetest joy is to see believers walking in the truth of God's word and growing in grace and service to Christ. And for this, faithful pastors are willing to give of themselves for the sake of the flock. In fact, the author of Hebrews talks about where pastors receive their joy and where the members of the congregation receive their joy. He starts with the pastors. Look at verse 17 again. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. This part is addressed to the people of the congregation. What this is saying is that it is the responsibility of the people in the congregation to see to it that their pastors can lead with joy and not with grief. How do they do this? By submitting to their leadership instead of bucking them. MacArthur says we are not to submit begrudgingly or out of a feeling of compulsion, but willingly so that our elders may experience joy in their work with us. It is an all too common problem in the church for stubborn, self-willed people to rob their pastors of the joy that God intends for faithful pastors to have. Failure to submit to them brings grief to the hearts of pastors instead of joy. The word for grief, grief there is a Greek word that literally means internal groaning. Guthrie says, when members of the church fail to submit themselves to the leadership, the leaders end up working under an emotional burden that gives them a life filled with sighs. Now, most faithful pastors would never publicly express this kind of grief to others, but it is an ache in their hearts, many times a constant ache. It is a grief that is often known only to him and his family, but God says, this is not good. This is not good. We're not to create this kind of grief through our lack of submission to them. Now, someone might say, well, wait a minute. Are you saying that Pastors are always right? Of course not. Of course not. Pastors are not infallible and many times make mistakes. And there are times in which church, a church member is justified in challenging a pastor's leadership. We must hold pastors accountable, but we must do it in a biblical manner. In fact, we're given instructions on how to do this. In 1 Timothy 5, 19 and 20, here it says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also may be fearful of sinning. If a pastor is in sin, there is a biblical process for dealing with it. But as long as he is living a godly life and is faithfully preaching God's Word, he is to be fully supported by the congregation. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 5.12 tells us the attitude that we're to have toward our pastors. It says, appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. 
But going back to Hebrews thirteen seventeen, notice that the author of Hebrews also talks about the joy of the congregation. Look at it again. For this, the lack of submission to them, would be unprofitable to you. Not only does it rob your pastors of their joy, but it also robs you of yours. It is not profitable in the long run for you to make things difficult for your pastors. A lack of submission to elders hinders the health and the vitality of the church. It can result in spiritual barrenness and stagnation. And think about this. If you have a happy pastor, you'll have a happy congregation. The reverse of that is also true. So what's the point? Help your pastors by fully supporting them and offering them loving submission. This will make the church better and stronger and will benefit all of you in the long run. Ron Phillips wrote this. He said, no man of God can lead unless there are those who will be led. No man of God can feed unless there are those who will be fed. He says, you are the measure of your pastor's ministry. Your response will determine God's blessing on the church. So these are the characteristics of the new covenant. Separation, sacrifices, submission. How are we doing with these? Are we walking in separation from the world? Are we offering up a sacrifice of gratitude and giving? Are we submitting ourselves to the leadership God has established for the church? Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning you'll help us to apply these characteristics to ask ourselves and to evaluate our own lives, our own walk with you, are these characteristics of our lives, are these characteristics of this church, is this something that um, we're walking as New Covenant believers according to the pattern of your word? And Lord, if we're not, help us to repent and help us to make a change and to submit to you and your plan for us. Lord, again, as always, I pray if there's someone here today that does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that they will come to know you. Lord, we pray that as we come to the end of this time of the proclamation of your word, that we would respond to you in a way that would please you. So, Lord, help us to do that now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.